Welcome to the AJHP podcast series. The American Journal of Health System Pharmacy is the official journal of the American Society of Health System Pharmacists, an association of pharmacists committed to helping patients make the best use of medications. For more information about AJHP, please visit www.ajhp.org. This is William Zelmer, contributing editor of the American Journal of Health System Pharmacy, and I'm speaking with Dr. John Volgus, who is the lead author of a manuscript in AJHP entitled Integration of a Clinical Pharmacist into the Hematology-Oncology Clinics at an Academic Medical Center. Dr. Volgus is Hematology-Oncology Clinical Pharmacist Practitioner at the University of North Carolina Hospitals and Clinics, and also Clinical Assistant Professor at the University of North Carolina Eshelman School of Pharmacy. Welcome, Dr. Volgus. Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity to, to speak with you today, and we're very excited about how this program has come together and that this uh, paper will be featured in AJHP. I'd appreciate it if uh, we began by having you describe briefly the practice setting that's reflected in this article. Sure, sure. Yeah. We're a relatively large uh, public academic teaching center here at the University of North Carolina. The specific practice setting for this set of services was uh, the North Carolina Cancer Hospital, which is comprehensive cancer center, relatively busy. We do about a, a thousand infusions per month. We have very close relationship with uh, the UNC Eshelman School of Pharmacy, which is uh, right across the street. The Department of Pharmacy itself is uh, about 240 employees, about half of those are pharmacists. And pharmacy in general here at UNC has had a pretty long tradition of establishing clinical practice and developing relationships with the patients and physicians and nurses. So it's a nice opportunity for me to sort of extend that into the, the outpatient oncology clinics. Your um, paper describes, of course, uh, clinical pharmacist services at a specific clinic, uh, hematology, oncology. Were comparable pharmacist services offered at other clinics when, you're, when you began your program? Um, there were, and I was lucky that there were some examples already in existence here on campus, which uh, really I used to help model um, our service after. There's a very active group over in the Department of Internal Medicine. There are three pharmacists there who practice in the areas of diabetes, anticoagulation, and chronic pain management, and they've been doing this for over a decade now. And so I was able to meet with them early on, sort of discuss with them some of the issues that they had to overcome in implementing their services, but they were really uh, integral to helping me form the, the practice. And in addition, there was also around the same time that I was implementing this in hematology oncology, there was another pharmacist who was doing something similar in endocrinology. And then her and I met several times with some of the hospital leadership and people within the billing department to figure out you know, the structure of how we would do this as a, as a hospital-based clinic and hospital-based pharmacist. One of the things you discuss uh, in your manuscript is the requirement for uh, the position that I believe you hold for this to be a clinical pharmacist practitioner, a specific classification in North Carolina pharmacy law. Could you explain that to us? Sure. We're very fortunate here in North Carolina to have very progressive leaders over the years. And I think it was uh, back in 2000 or so when the, the state decided to enact a law which allowed pharmacists 
to work within collaborative practices with physicians to provide direct uh, drug therapy management for patients. So um, this uh, allows pharmacists to operate under the guidance of those clinical practice workflows to um, have provider status within institutions so I can schedule patients specifically to see me and also um, enables pharmacists to have prescriptive authority, which includes any medications which would be under the umbrella of those working documents that you have as a collaborative practice with the physicians. Describe for us the the goals of your particular program, and I imagine to do that, um, you might want to also discuss a little bit some of the issues and uh, challenges that were faced with appropriate care in these clinics before a clinical pharmacist came on the scene. Yeah, one of the first things I I tried to do is uh, meet with several different stakeholders throughout the the cancer hospital, and that included representatives from the physician groups, from the the nursing leadership, as well as pharmacy leadership, and really trying to identify from them what they felt were some of the deficiencies that were in existence in the outpatient clinics or just things that, that we could improve on. And so I met with those leaders, and really that's where the the goals of the program resulted from and included a program revolving around supportive care um, for cancer patients, which I I really still feel was the main backbone of the entire program. It was something that we were not offering to patients at the time. One of the physicians who is on the paper, Stephen Bernard, had initiated an inpatient palliative care program. But at the same time, I was looking to move to the outpatient side. He was also trying to develop a program to offer these supportive care and palliative care services on the outpatient side. And so that lined up perfectly in terms of the timing. I had worked with him for many years on the inpatient side, so he knew the things I was capable of. And so we really identified that from the physician end as being a high priority. The nurses at the time um, were doing all the chemotherapy education for patients in addition to everything else they were doing in the infusion center. And one of the things that they had asked um, specifically was that I do the education for those patients, specifically in the very first cycle they were receiving chemotherapy. The nurse manager also identified lots of um, infusion efficiency issues, and um, we probably had a list of you know, 10 or different things we could have done to try and tackle the efficiency issues, but really identified rituximab infusions as uh, one of the more common infusions that were used that was very time-consuming. So we had targeted that specifically to help improve the efficiency in the infusion clinics. And then finally, the pharmacy group really, to be honest, didn't know exactly what we needed in the um, outpatient oncology area because we had never had anyone really focused in that area. But the School of Pharmacy had identified that there was a great need for more rotation sites for students, that we didn't have anything in the ambulatory care setting in oncology. At the time, we only had an inpatient oncology rotation. And so there was a big drive both from the School of Pharmacy and from the Department of Pharmacy for the residents to develop an experiential learning experience. So for those four goals or objectives you had for this program, let's just take the first one dealing with supportive care. Could you describe briefly some of the key outcomes thus far? Sure. Yeah, I think one of the, the biggest pieces that we wanted to accomplish, first of all, was just make sure that people knew that there was a service available to help the primary oncologists manage some of the symptoms that patients were 
going through, whether it be symptoms of their cancer or symptoms of their cancer treatment. And so what I did is worked with uh, Dr. Bernard and Sandy Jar, who is a nurse clinical specialist, to develop a model that served mainly as a consult service up front, where basically the pharmacist and the nurse would actually travel to where the patient was. And so if a patient was up in the hematology oncology clinics, we would go there when they were meeting with their primary oncologist. Or if they were down in radiation oncology, um, we would travel down there. And really doing that in an effort to have timely service for the patients, in addition, not have the patients have to schedule an additional appointment just to see us. And so after establishing that, we really started to track, okay, well, what are the clinical outcomes that we were looking at? So we tracked uh, symptom scores for pain management, um, nausea management, other things like constipation, diarrhea. And that was the subject of a separate publication that we published last year in Journal of Oncology Practice that showed that we had significant reductions in those uh, symptom scores. When you interact with patients uh, in the clinic, do you make it clear to them that uh, they're speaking with a pharmacist? Oh, I do. It's funny you ask that question because a lot of them feel like I'm their personal pharmacist. And so uh, it's been very fun to to work with those patients in that setting because if I'm not there um, for some reason, uh, the physician I work with or the nurse I work with often will say, oh, well, you know, Mr. Smith asked you know, where you were and he had some medication issues. The other thing I, th- I think is fun is when introducing myself as the pharmacist, it's amazing to see how many patients, their eyes sort of light up and, oh, wow, a pharmacist here because, you know, these patients have a lot of complicated medication issues. And I think a lot of them want someone who would be able to take the time to speak with them about those medication issues. So a lot of times I find myself getting into uh uh, conversations that maybe are uh, not related to the direct symptom we were there to manage, but other things that are medication-related that the patients want to bring up because they know a pharmacist is there. Sure. Well, I think that's very important because, as we both know, our profession as a whole has a bit of an image problem, and we tend to be stereotyped on some occasions. And I think by the interactions that you're having with your patients and with them recognizing that uh, you're a pharmacist, that can really help uh, this broader issue within the profession. Let me ask you, in in terms of the work you do with your second goal of enhancing the education of cancer patients, what have been some of the key results in that area? Well, really, the one thing we wanted to bring to the education process was some standardization. And by doing some things like identifying specific written resources that we could actually give to the patients, also documenting exactly what we covered with the patient in the medical record so that anybody who wanted to look back to see what was discussed is right there for everyone to see. And also relieve some of the the infusion nurses of some time so that they could in turn improve some of the efficiency issues in the infusion clinic. But But those are all things that we wanted to obtain in this, what I would still call an introductory phase of the chemotherapy teaching. And also just being able to say that every patient at UNC, before they're about to start their first cycle of chemotherapy, they speak to a clinical pharmacist. I think to me in itself, that's a huge goal that we were able to accomplish. So so those are some of the things that we've started with, but definitely we're going to follow that up with some other activities, including a, a patient satisfaction survey that will also evaluate their feeling of anxiety, um, what they're feeling of their knowledge of chemotherapy, 
and really try and address if their discussions with a pharmacist help to alleviate some of that anxiety. You know, would they like to talk to the pharmacist again at a, a later visit? Those are some of the things we're doing to try and move it forward to continue to gather important information. The third area of unmet needs that you mentioned had to do with the efficiency of chemotherapy infusion. Could you discuss, please, uh, some of the results there? Yeah. One of the things that was in the literature almost for a year before we started the program was a concept of um, doing a much faster infusion of rituximab, which is a very common monoclonal antibody used for a variety of malignancies. And for us, uh, when we followed the package insert information, the average rituximab infusion took about three hours for a return patient. It's always a little bit faster of infusion for return patients versus a patient who is newly initiating um, rituximab. But when you looked at the literature, it said you could probably safely infuse rituximab in half that time, in about an hour and a half. And so there were several trials that we used to justify it, but we went ahead and implemented that as part of uh, standard clinical practice. And when we did it, we didn't see any differences in infusion reactions. On average, if you look at the number of rituximab infusions that we do, which is about 400 a year, we're estimating that we're saving about 600 hours of infusion chair time per year. And right now, that process is completely on autopilot. We've built the rapid infusion protocol into all of our chemotherapy order templates, all the physicians have accepted that, and we just looked about six months ago, and it's about you know 85 to 90 percent of eligible patients are now receiving the rapid infusion rituxan. Well, that's impressive. Your last goal had to do with experiential learning opportunities for pharmacy students and residents. Uh, how has this worked out? It's definitely been a lot of fun. Um, we've had a real big mix of students, uh, PGY1 residents, and also uh, specialty PGY2 residents on rotation. It's it's a real flexible rotation too, so it really it does speak to a lot of different areas of interest, including administration, oncology, ambulatory care. Um, even some of our critical care residents have visited um, the service just to get an appreciation for some of the end-of-life issues that we deal with. But it's been uh, getting more and more busy with uh, more and more learners. And so we've seen about a 50% growth in the number of learners that we've hosted between the first 18 months and the last year. You describe in your paper uh, the various sources you used initially to fund this program. Could you summarize that for our listeners? Sure. We, we had to get a bit creative when creating this position, and we were uh, fortunate that the state of North Carolina had appropriated what's called the University Cancer Research Fund as uh, a source of funding to improve cancer care throughout North Carolina. And within that umbrella of the University Cancer Research Fund, there was a set of awards called Clinical Innovation Awards, which um, were a maximum value of about $75,000 per year per award, but would really help to jumpstart these new clinical initiatives that met unmet issues within the cancer hospital. So we applied for that funding, um, were awarded the uh, full amount, and then worked with the Department of Pharmacy and the, the Eshelman School of Pharmacy to develop the funds for the other part of the pharmacist funding. Right now, we um, had just received actually a two-year extension of the University Cancer Research funding, but with the goal that by the end of 2011, that the Department of Pharmacy and the School of Pharmacy would fully fund this position permanently. 
Do you uh, contemplate that through the normal payment process for uh, oncology services, that your program could be sustained through that mechanism? Or is it uh, the view that you would always have uh, other external support, such as you mentioned, to make this sustainable? Definitely one of the things we're working towards is to prove the sustainability and, and prove the wise investment that the hospital and the school are making. You know, what I've had to do is really take revenue generation and cost savings from a number of different areas to help justify the position. So, for example, if you look at the, the pharmacist billing, which we do through facility fee billing here at UNC, for the supportive care program, that brings in an estimated about $30,000 per year. Um, when you add in the piece uh, regarding the chemotherapy counseling and teaching sessions, um, that brings in an additional about $30,000 per year. And um, we had some of our hospital administrators actually work the numbers for the rituximab project that um, made the assumption that if we were able to vacate those infusion chairs earlier, um, would we be able to fill them with new chemotherapy patients? And currently right now, um, we're at capacity in our infusion unit. And what they used as a very conservative estimate was that that would bring an additional $100,000 per year of revenue in terms of additional patients we would be able to schedule in the infusion clinics without any additional resources. So by using that sort of variety of revenue generation, um, we have been able to justify the position. Well, that's very good. Dr. Valgus, I really appreciate your taking time to chat with me about uh, your program, and congratulations again on the success of it. And on the acceptance of your paper by AJHP. This is William Zelmer, a contributing editor of AJHP. I've been speaking with Dr. John Valgus, who is a board-certified oncology pharmacist who practices as a clinical pharmacist practitioner in hematology oncology at the University of North Carolina Hospitals and Clinics. He's also clinical assistant professor at the University of North Carolina Eshelman School of Pharmacy in Chapel Hill. And the title of his paper, is integration of a clinical pharmacist into the hematology, oncology clinics, and an academic medical center. That concludes this podcast. For more information, please visit www.ajhp.org.